If you have your Bible with you, please turn to Malachi chapter 4 as we finish our series through this short book of Malachi. We look to the natural end of the trajectory of the prophetic weight of this book. Malachi chapter 4. If you're somewhat new to the Bible, uh, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. You can find your way to the very end of the Old Testament. And we're in the last chapter of that book, Malachi 4. Last year, uh, Becky and I went to see a a movie called Living. Uh, This was a a British film. It's actually a remake of of an old Japanese movie. Uh, In the remake, Living is about an old man who who works a very boring job in some British government office. He's a bureaucrat of some kind, reviewing files all day that he either stamps approval on or, 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 or disapproval on. And every day is pretty much the same. He's just kind of going through sort of a routine, mundane existence. And then one day he he, um, feels sick and eventually it it persists and he goes to the doctor and he's diagnosed with cancer. And he suddenly faces the reality that he's going to die. And so he decides that perhaps he has wasted a lot of time and he wants to finally start living. That's the name of the movie, Living. So... Uh, the first thing he does is he goes to the bank and he takes out half of his life savings and he starts spending it. He's a very spendthrift kind of guy. He, he never spent a whole lot of money. He, he lives very meagerly and he thought, I don't have a lot of time left. Let me spend this money. And so um, he spends it on a lot of silly things. He like goes to the carnival and the, the you know, seaside boardwalks and he spends it on these really stupid games and you know, things like that. He's wasting his money on, on, on trinkets and little bits of fun. And then he ends up going to the taverns and he ends up getting drunk and wasting his money on alcohol. And then he spends his money making acquaintances who only want to be with him because he's spending money, and they'll spend his money, you know, he'll spend his money on them. And then he suddenly realizes that wasting your life is not really living, that he's, this is actually not bringing him any happiness or any joy or any satisfaction. This is not how he wants to end his final day. So he begins trying to find some joy in the life that he has left, and he begins making some relational connections with some coworkers that he'd actually never really spoken to all that much uh, before. And he eventually decides that his final days are going to be spent on uh, a mission of sorts. He's going to spend his final days getting a neighborhood playground built for children to enjoy for years to come. And that's essentially going to be his legacy, this playground. It's a really interesting movie, very um, heartfelt, very touching in places. It's it's all about the contemplation of aging and of of death. And um, as I thought about it, and I think even the character, I mean, this is you know, somewhat explicit even in the movie, um, th- this man was given a strange gift. It's certainly not a good thing to be diagnosed with cancer. You know, he knew uh, um, you know, that his time was short, but in a way it was, it was actually kind of a gift to him because he knew very vividly in ways that most of us don't that he's going to die. Not just because he was an old man, but because he had actually been diagnosed with this disease. The doctor basically gave him six to nine months to live. He had an allotment of days. So he had at least in some vague way a number that he could spend. Most of us don't get that. Unless we have a a terminal disease of some kind, you and I, we get up in the morning, we assume that it's one more day in a long succession of days. 
The older we get, of course, we know that those are fewer days than when we were younger. But still, we, we tend to live in kind of routine, mundane lives. We're going to live for a very long time, we think, especially when we're young. And so we don't live with a sense of urgency. We don't live with a sense of eternity. You probably didn't get up this morning and, and think about the finish line of your life. Most of us don't get up in the morning and think about the finish line of our life. We may think about the finish line of that day. I can't wait to get back home and get in this bed again, right? Or maybe the finish line of the week. I just can't wait to the weekend. But most of us don't go through the day thinking about the finish line of life. What was interesting to me um, about this movie is how little it seemed this man thought about spiritual things. There's one line where he mentions going to meet his maker. So I, I, I assume he believes in a God of some kind. But when it came down to getting ready for the end, he didn't really seem to be putting much thought at all into questions of heaven or hell or salvation or damnation. For all that he was pouring his final days into, I'm not sure he was truly ready for the end. Well, as we turn now to the last chapter in Malachi, the prophet is preparing the people and, and us, you and me, this morning for the end. What's going to happen? Where will we go? What will we face? How should we live today in light of all of that? How should you and I get ready for the end? Malachi 4, beginning in verse 1. For look, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. The coming day will consume them, says the Lord of armies, not leaving them root or branches. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and playfully jump like calves from the stall. You will trample the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I am preparing, says the Lord of armies. Remember the instruction of Moses, my servant, the statutes and ordinances I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Look, I am going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this word. We ask that you would prepare our hearts for the difficulties of it, the heaviness of it. May we have softened hearts to receive the, the strong rebuke, the strong warning. And may we have open hearts to hear the strength of this, the great Savior, Jesus Christ. May we see above all these things the glory of your Son, sovereign and saving. And it's in his name we pray these things. Amen. Young people of Liberty Baptist Church, at your age, you're at a great advantage and a great disadvantage. You're at a great advantage because you have lots of possibilities before you, your future appears wide open, you have a lot more energy than the rest of us, but you're at a great disadvantage because it's precisely because of all of those things that you might not naturally think about the end. 
It was with the young people of our church, largely in mind that I thought through my entries in our Ecclesiastes series last year, because Ecclesiastes is basically Solomon looking back. As an older man looking back and thinking, these are all the things that I wish I could avoid. If I could send a note to my younger self. And so he's talking to young people, essentially saying, don't make the mistakes that I did. I want you to avoid wasting your life. In that same book, Solomon says, God has put eternity into the hearts of men. Our souls are scaled to eternity. They're not made just for this life alone. Because even if you happen to live a long, long time, your life span will still be nothing but a grain of sand on all the miles and all the beaches of the world. Your life will be but a fingerprint on the window of a skyscraper. Older people of Liberty Baptist Church, at your age, you are at a great advantage and a great disadvantage. You're at a great advantage because you've accumulated a lifetime of experience and wisdom. Even if that's uh, you know, come at the expense of making mistakes or making some failures, learning from things that you did wrong, you now have the wisdom and experience that younger people do not. You're at an advantage because you have seen trends and fashions and cultural movements come and go, and so you're less susceptible to getting swept up into those things. You see the world from a higher perspective than the rest of us. But you're at a disadvantage sometimes because you may be tempted to think, look, I've, I've, I've put in my time, I've done all my duties, now it's just time to relax, it's just time to, to coast after a lifetime of hard work, I just want to be as comfortable as possible. You may be tempted to think that you're finished before you're finished. Middle-aged people of Liberty Baptist Church, there's a few of us. You're at a great advantage and a great disadvantage. A great advantage because you've been around the block a few times. You make fewer mistakes of youth and Settle down many of your you know, immature instincts and impulses. But you're at a disadvantage because the middle age years are almost like a, a, a reset. Maybe the kids have left the house. Maybe you get a little more financially stable. And it's like getting a new life. When we get a new life at a time that we're contemplating getting older... I think this is where the midlife crisis often kicks in for so many. We begin to medicate to, to try to satisfy, soothe these really eternal aches with things that are temporary. We're getting older and feeling at the same time that we've got more time and money to burn, and that's a dangerous combination. Well, this morning, God wants to get all of our attention. Through the prophet Malachi, he's arresting the attention of the people of Israel, and, and by extension, he's arresting our attention this morning as well, to eternity. He's grabbing our head, and he's turning us to face the thing that we usually don't want to face until we get very old or something goes very wrong. This is why I love the way chapter 4 opens with the words, look. Verse 1, for look, the day is coming. Pay attention to this. Malachi is saying, this is important. There is a day approaching, and it's serious stuff. You don't want to get caught off guard. You don't want to be unprepared. You need to be ready for the end. 
because that day is coming. And you won't know when. So now that we're looking, now that he has our attention, how, how do we get ready for the end? What should we do? Well, first of all, we should realize that judgment is coming. Realize that judgment is coming. This passage is, for everything else that it is, a reminder that hell is real. That judgment is coming. These days, the idea of hell is, is not just out of fashion. It's, for a lot of people, it's just out of belief. Whenever someone points to the biblical evidence, some who stumble at the offensiveness of the idea will argue, look, this, Jared, this is all metaphorical language. This is just poetry. These are just symbols. Some will look at this passage and they'll say, look, this is just symbolic language. To which we would say, okay, but symbolic of what? Symbols have reference. Like the places in the parable Jesus told about Lazarus. Lazarus is in paradise and the rich man's in the place of torment. These symbols refer to things. Jesus might have been employing poetic language, but those correspond to things, things that are bigger, actually, and more real than the text sometimes would even say. The language of the prophets, Malachi included, may convey sort of a, a poetic reality or a heightened reality, but the Bible doesn't warn us about mythical places. The Bible does not exist in metaphor land. Jesus talked about the place of condemnation a lot. He refers to it as a place of torment and a place of anguish. This certainly means that wherever we go after we die cannot be an unconscious void. More obviously, it can't mean that everybody goes to heaven. Jesus says, some go to hell. The Bible outlines two destinations for those who die. It's heaven or hell. And as this passage indicates, it's become stubble or it's become healed. It's walking in victory or it's being trampled underfoot. Verse 5, the, the day of judgment will either be wonderful or it will be terrible. And there's no second chances at the day of judgment. There's no do-overs at the day of judgment. There's no possibility of moving between one or the other. There's no purgatory to work through what you didn't get right on earth. When this life is done, it's game over. The chasm is fixed. It is irrevocable. In hell, the anguish will be forever, and from it there will be no relief. This is not an unclear part of Scripture. We only make it unclear when we're uncomfortable with it. Young people, middle-aged people, old people, hell is real. In fact, the holiness of God demands that it be real. For look, verse 1, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. The coming day will consume them, says the Lord of armies, not leaving them root or branches. This is not just a portrait of wicked people reaping what they have sown in earthly consequences. This isn't karma. This is a portrait of judgment. It's a reminder that God will punish sin. And that people who commit to the way of sin are running headlong, not just into the consequences, but into divine condemnation. 
They're called here arrogant. Why? Because to live committed to wickedness is to live like you're your own God. Like the God who made you doesn't exist or or doesn't much matter. And that is a prideful and self-centered and ultimately foolish way to live. Most people spend most of their lives worried about the first death and give no thought at all about the second. We make decisions, we live our lives, we invest or think or stress all about things that affect this life and rarely do we think about our lives here in light of what comes after. We don't live like we fear judgment. We don't live like there's an eternity to reckon with. Jesus warns us in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. If dying is bad enough, the second death after death is infinitely worse. It is eternal conscious torment. Separation from God forever and forever, receiving his wrath. Some will say, well, hell is the the absence of God. No, it's actually the presence of God in wrath. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul describes Christ coming in judgment on the wicked. He says, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. He says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. In Revelation 14, 11, we are told that the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. In Mark 9, we learn that it's a place of unquenchable fire where the worm does not die. In Matthew 13, we learn that it's a place where people will gnash their teeth in anguish and regret. In Matthew 25, Jesus calls hell a place of outer darkness. This is not much ado about nothing. This is not symbolic language that has no reference to reality. Hell is real. And it's amazingly simple to go there. All you have to do to go to hell is nothing. All you have to do is care only about this life and go on living. Just arrogantly commit to your own way. A lot of Christians don't hear preaching on hell much anymore. And I fear in our neglect, we are inadvertently adding to the apathy of those who are going there. Our taking this lightly will only exacerbate the agony of eternal condemnation. This is why we really ought to be concerned for our lost friends. Not simply because they don't share our values. It makes for a more comfortable holiday get-together when everyone's a Christian. We have concern for them because hell is real and lost people go there. Because we love them and want them to avoid God's wrath which is coming for all the disobedient. If you do not face the realization that hell is real, you will not be ready for the end. Fire, the Lord of armies says, will consume you like you were nothing more than kindling. When they think about this reality, a lot of people will say, how is this fair? Isn't God good? Isn't God love? How can a good and loving God send people To hell. Maybe you've asked that. Maybe you've just 
had that asked, you have friends or family members who have said you know, such things to you. And it's a good question. Maybe you've been troubled by that. Yeah, if God is love, why, why, did he send, why would he send people to hell? Well, the whole Bible has an answer for this question, including Malachi 4. Do you want to be ready for the end? Don't just realize that hell is real. Secondly, remember that God is holy. Remember that God is holy. You see, this kind of fiery judgment only makes sense if he's holy. If he's just some kind of kindly grandpa in the sky, some kind of exalted Santa Claus, then, then yeah, the idea of hell makes no sense. But if he is a perfect, divine creator who by his very nature cannot abide sin, the judgment of the disobedient makes total sense. And it's perfectly fair. Still, this is the kind of thing we get a little nervous about when we're discussing Christianity with our friends and neighbors. We wonder sometimes if we can leave it out of gospel presentations. or Sometimes we just feel a little bit like we're on the defensive about God's character. Maybe we're not doing apologetics so much as making apologies for God. I think I've made, uh, referenced this in, um, in past weeks, but C.S. Lewis talks about this concept of like, he, he says, man has put God in the dock. The, the, the dock is just the word like for the witness stand. We put God on trial and ask him, defend yourself. Justify yourself to us. We're in the place of judgment and God is on the hot seat. So many of our discomforts about God's ways, especially in judgment, have not to do with God's actual character, but our assumptions about what God would be like. We think, well, if I was God, I'd be a lot nicer. That's not true at all. (laughs) We think we're holding on to our moral compass, and we don't understand why God isn't tracking with our true north. But what we have lost in this way of thinking is that God is true north. He is sovereign and he is holy. Verse 4, remember the instruction of Moses, my servant, the statutes and ordinances I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Why is the Lord, through Malachi, bringing this to mind? It may be because, like you and me, they hear this talk of coming judgment and they think, well, doesn't that seem a little over the top? And God is saying, I have not left it unclear what is expected for those who believe in me. I gave you a long list of instructions, statutes, ordinances, rules, laws, rituals, all that reflect my holiness. I could not have been more clear. If you're ever reading through the Old Testament and you begin to wonder, like, they need all of that. It was so detailed. It's just so heavy. Do they need to know what the measurements of this and that are and where to put this? Do they really need to know not to do all these things? That We should just know that we're not supposed to do those things. This is God saying, I don't want you scratching your head. I want to make it as clear and as detailed as possible. And all of that is for us to look and go, look how meticulously and perfectly holy God is. In Leviticus 11.45, God says to Israel, you must be holy because I am holy. So the people of God receiving this prophecy in Malachi 4, they should never have been in the dark about the holiness of God. Oh, you mean rampant divorce, adultery? Like we had no idea. They know the commands and they're saying, yeah, I know what you've said. I choose my own way. The apostle Peter repeats this command, be holy as I am holy in 1 Peter 1.16. You and I should not be in the dark about the holiness of God. We may not 
understand all the ins and outs of that, but we don't have a lack of clarity that God is holy. He's given us that word. And we may object on the surface. It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem just. But we all understand holiness innately. All, I think all people do, whether they're saved or not, actually. Every talk of right and wrong, good and evil, justice and injustice, that comes from somewhere. You just listen in to kids playing on the playground. Eventually you're going to hear, that's not fair. Where, where does that come from? The idea of things being right or wrong or fair or unfair, that's not built on human emotions. It's certainly colored by human emotions. But the very idea of it, fair and unfair, right, wrong, good, evil, that's built on being made in the image of a holy God. The one thing the Bible will not allow us to say about God is that he is not God. There is one God, and that one God is Yahweh God, the God of Abraham and Isaac, the God who created the universe. There are no other gods before him. All other gods are idols or demons. And because God is the only God, the God who has made us, who set all of this stuff in motion, he decides what's right and wrong, not us. He decides what is good and bad. He decides what is just and unjust. The one true God is holy and righteous. He is just, so he cannot be unjust. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, He is the rock. His works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong. Upright and just is he. You do not belong to yourself. You belong to him. Some of you are living your lives, you think nothing of this. You're religious when it's time to come be religious. But you make decisions day in and day out, you invest in things, you engage in certain patterns of behavior that give no thought to God's righteousness. You aren't thinking of what will happen in the life to come, but you only think about what seems most pleasurable, most beneficial, most comfortable to you now. And you should know that the holy God will not compromise his justice. And if the just God who made everything, the God who is holy, 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 gives us instructions, we ought to remember them. With our lives, we ought to remember that he is holy. We remember that with our lives because we will definitely know it in our deaths. The day is coming, burning like a furnace, when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. Burnt up over and over again in a fire that never ends. Why? Because God's holiness never ends. His holiness isn't temporary. His holiness is unquenchable. So the fires of hell are unquenchable. But because his holiness is unquenchable, so is his grace. His grace is unquenchable too. So if you want to get ready for the end, thirdly and finally, repent and you will be saved. Repent and you will be saved. Realize that hell is real. Remember that God is holy. Repent and you will be saved. This is a stark contrast in Malachi 4, isn't it? I mean, it's kind of jarring, but it's just the biblical portrait of bad news, good news. And the good news is only as good as the bad news is bad. 
If the bad news really ain't that bad, the good news isn't really all that good. For as great and terrible as the day of, co- of coming judgment is, that's not the whole of the story, praise God. But for you, verse 2, who fear my name, the Son of righteousness will rise. If you don't have a Bible in front of you, uh, you should know that the sun, there's S-U-N, like, like the sunrise, not S-O-N. The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and playfully jump like calves from the stall. For the wicked, eternal judgment. For the righteous, everlasting bliss. Infinite joy. Glorious redemption. Psalm 16.10 says, You will not let your Holy One see corruption. Proverbs 11.19, Whoever is steadfast in righteousness will live. Matthew 5.8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This, this sounds great, doesn't it? God will not condemn the righteous. The righteous are saved from the second death, and they get to spend eternity enjoying the glory of God. But then there's a problem here, isn't there? Because we've already said that God is holy. When you remember all those instructions and statutes and ordinances, you realize how holy he is. But at the same time, you see how unholy you are. It's one of the the ironies of, of the law. It tells us what to do, and it reveals how holy God is. But man, as soon as I look at it, I feel overwhelmed. What is it? That's me seeing how small, how, how dirty I am spiritually. When I remember God's holiness, I'm immediately struck by how short I fall. Which I think is a lot of times why we don't contemplate the holiness of God, because it makes so little of us. We instantly feel unholy. None of us wants to feel that way, so we stop thinking about the holiness of God. But that's one of the functions of looking at the law. I think of Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You think like, like nobody? Nobody's righteous? Nobody's good enough? Romans 3.20, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Isaiah 46 tells us, among other things, our righteousness is like filthy rags. And I think about my 96-year-old little Mexican grandmother, so sweet and so frail, And she reads her Bible every day, all day, and she prays. She's the biggest prayer warrior that I know. So many of us have that little Christian grandma in our family, and we think, filthy rags? You're talking about my grandma? I mean, this goes for your awesome Christian grandmother as much as it does for you. It goes for Billy Graham and Mother Teresa and anybody else that we would consider good Today, as much as it does for you and me. Before God, apart from God, not one person who ever lived can be called righteous. Except for one. You know, when you add up points one and two, hell is real, God is holy, it sounds then like nobody should be in heaven but God. And in a way, that's right. Nobody should be in heaven but God. There aren't good people and bad people. There's people and God. We have all sinned and fallen short of his glory. So if we're not righteous, 
How can he let us into heaven and still himself be righteous? If he's holy, how is he letting unholy people in? Well, some say, oh, look, well, look let me. he bends the rules. You know, he just kind of bends the rules a little bit, creates kind of a loophole. He compromises his justice to let sinners into heaven. But God never compromises his justice. Never. He is totally and wholly just. There are no ifs, ands, or buts about that. He does not bend his law. No, it is we who should bend. We should bend our head to bask in his glory. We should bend our knee in submission to him. We should bend our way of living toward his grace. What is repentance, really? It's a a biblical word. Essentially, it means like there's a turning from something, but we sometimes forget there's a turning to something as well. In fact, this is why I love the reconciliation language of verse 6. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. The holy God provides a way of escape from his wrath by his own grace. For you who fear my name, verse 2, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go out and playfully jump like calves from the stall. Now, I love this image, the calves leaping from, the, like, for a long time I had no idea like, what it really meant. I, I've seen cows, obviously, I've seen cows since I was a little kid. I've never seen cows run, much less jump, <laughs> you know, leap. You ever seen a cow do any of those things? But then we moved to Vermont, and we moved right across the street from this rocky hillside that was a cow pasture, the electric fence around, and it was very close. We had this one big picture window in our living room, and we set you know, kind of a high-top table right next to the window, so you could kind of just kind of sit at the table and look out, and it was not far. I mean, it was just like our yard was not really big. Just right across, there was a rural road, and then there's the cows, and we watched the cows, and it was cool to see the cows, but then when they had calves, and the baby cows come out, and, and I'm like, whoa, I've never seen a cow with so much energy. <laughs> the baby calves, they're like, they're not just running, they're like, they're like bouncing, they're like boing, boing, like all over the place. I was like, I didn't know that was a cow, like cows did something like that. Maybe you've seen maybe like videos of, uh, of, of those goats that are kind of like, woo, woo, woo. it's a very similar type of thing. What is this? And, and, and why would Malachi sort of bring this in as like a, a picture? I mean, it's cute and it's, it's funny and it's sweet, but it's really... It's a picture of the joy of newness. That's what I think. The calf, you know, I mean, it has a, a cow brain, so it's not really thinking consciously like this. But in essence, the calf is bouncing around like, what do these legs do? You know? <laughs> what happens if I throw my body over there? What happens if I throw my body over here? It's kind of like with our, you know, little calves, our, our babies. When they f- suddenly figure out they have hands, you know, they're just kind of, and they're like, there's the moment. They went from like this, there's, oh, I can control this thing. And maybe not well yet, but whoa, look at that. That's new. And then there's the day, you know, those of you who have babies or have had babies, where they realize the sounds that they're making are sounds that they are making, right? Oh, my mouth does, I'm not. And they start like just making sounds because my mom, and they, like they can figure out they can do something. They didn't know that. What is that? It's the joy of discovery. It's the, the joy of newness. The picture of calves leaping playfully from their stalls. It's a picture of freedom, of of release, of being made new. It's a picture of salvation. And I like to think sometimes, you know, like I hope I live a long, long time, even from now, 
I've lived a long time. I want to live a really long time. I'm not promised this afternoon. I'm not promised the next 30 minutes, much less tomorrow, but Lord willing, I live a long, long time. And I picture like, you get down to the end, however long the Lord gives you, whatever he allots to you. And the further you go, the frailer you get and the slower you get. And maybe I get all the way down to the end and um, maybe I can't even move very well. Maybe I need help even moving. And there's going to be the moment where like at the very end where like I just, I mean, I was just old. You're just old. And I close my eyes for the last time. And when I open them, it's like a calf leaping from the stall. Whoa. It's new. Look what these legs can do. Look at this. The joy. It's a, this is a picture of salvation. That salvation comes how? Verse 2. The sun of righteousness. What is the sun of righteousness rising with healing in its wings? Malachi is pointing the children of Israel. And he's pointing us to the glory of Jesus Christ. Several times in the scriptures, the Messiah's coming is described like a sunrise. Isaiah 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. In the book of Revelation, we're told that um, in the new creation, we won't need a sun or a moon because the Lamb of God will be the lamp of the new creation. Christ will be the sun. Jesus says at one point he wants to gather Israel under his wings. We even have some wing language that kind of cross-references. We also know that this passage is referring to the coming of Jesus because of how Jesus himself explained the expectation in verse 5. So, the prophet Elijah is supposed to come back before the Messiah to pave the way. Now, by the time of Malachi's prophecy here, Elijah had been dead for 400 years, or gone, I should say. He was taken up in the whirlwind. Elijah's been gone for 400 years. But this passage is why, for instance, Orthodox Jews to this day expect kind of a second coming of Elijah before the Messiah. At their Passover meal, for instance, they leave a a seat open. They leave a chair empty at the table. It's symbolic. They're expecting Elijah to come. But in Matthew 17, Jesus tells people, Elijah's already come. And he's talking about John the Baptist, who's fulfilling the role of Elijah in preceding the Messiah, who is Jesus himself. The other reason we know that verse 2 refers to Jesus is because the son of righteousness that heals sinners can only refer to one who is truly righteous. How can we solve the problems sinners face when remembering the holiness of God? We need to be made righteous, and we can't do it ourselves. That much is clear. We need to be holy as God is holy, but how? He sends his own holiness, his own self, to save us. Titus 3.5, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. The sun of righteousness rises over the horizon of our sinful hearts and it fills us with the light of God's glory. The S-U-N of righteousness is the S-O-N of God in the flesh. And he comes to pay the penalty of sin that we deserve to pay. He goes in our place and he receives the hellishness of the cross that we might avoid the hellishness of hell. He dies for us. And he rises again on the third day to conquer death and hell. And when we repent of our sin and put our faith in him, we receive not just the forgiveness of sins, we do receive that, but also his righteousness given to us, clothed with his holiness. That's how you get into heaven. 
If only the holy can go. We are declared holy as he is holy. And we have nothing, nothing to fear on the day of judgment. This is as much a picture of the end as this wrath is. Verse 5, look, I am going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. How do we avoid this curse that's going to strike the land? The Lord gives us, notice in verse 6, he will turn, it says. He will turn. He gives us repentance. He enables us to turn. He enables our repentance that he might reward us his righteousness. The punishment poured on Christ at the cross was God's full wrath for sin. Do you want to avoid the curse of Malachi 4.6? Christ became sin, became a curse for us. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. So Christ has received the wrath of God. In this way, God maintains the justice in both condemning the unrighteous and redeeming the righteous. The guilty will be punished. You have two options. You take the punishment or Christ takes it for you. Choose this day whom you will serve. Yourself or the God who loves you and sent his son to die for you. It's rather amazing really to think about, but at the cross of Jesus Christ, the glory of God is displayed in both wrath and redemption, in judgment and in pardon, in holiness and in grace. Not because these things are somehow at odds with each other necessarily, but because these are things that we see, uh, there's two ways to go here. I receive the holiness of God in condemnation, or I receive the holiness of God in his gospel. For the sake of the unrighteous, the one righteous man, Jesus Christ, takes the first death that we might be declared righteous and spared the second death. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. I, I love this picture too. Sort of the second kind of metaphor being used here, calves leaping from the stall, and then now this picture of sort of fatherly son or father, father and children reconciliation. I, I know in the faith um, that many children and their fathers enjoy sweet relationships. Some of you are very close to your fathers, still are close to your fathers. But I also know for many who come to faith, this is a, this is a fraught metaphor. Maybe you come to the faith, but your children have not. This is, whoa, wow, really? This, that could, like, we could be reconciled. Or sometimes um, we come to the faith, but our parents don't. And we look at this and our heart kind of leaps. I do believe that the Lord in his grace so often brings us about in our earthly families. Some of you have that testimony. Ultimately, however, this, this picture is of our heavenly family. It's about the family that the gospel makes out of sinners. That we might all become brothers and sisters, reconciled to our Heavenly Father through the work of our righteous big brother, Jesus. To be reconciled to the Father by the righteous death and glorious resurrection of Jesus is the greatest experience any of us could have. For as terrible as the wrath of God is, is as deep and abiding as his affectionate love. If you repent of your sin, turn from your way and follow Jesus, you are held to the Father's very heart.
In J.C. Ryle's book, um, Holiness, Ryle tells the story of an unsaved Englishman who was traveling through America, and he encounters a Native, uh, a Native American man who had given his life to Christ, become a Christian. And the British unbeliever says, fellow, what's the reason that you make so much of Christ? It's not the religion of your ancestors. Why do you talk so much about Jesus? What has this Christ done for you that you should make such an ado about him? And at first, the, the Native American man didn't respond. He didn't use words. He just calmly gathered some twigs and some grass and some moss on the ground, and he put them in a little circle. And then he dug up a worm, and he dropped the worm in the middle of the circle. And he sparked a fire, and he set the, that little ring of kindling on fire. And as the fire spread around, and now there was a full circle of fire around the worm, he began to put more kindling and little bits of moss inside to create a smaller ring. And that ring caught fire. And gradually he made a ring of fire smaller and smaller and smaller until the worm was being encroached upon by this ring of fire. And of course the worm is feeling these flames and the worm begins to react. And at the moment that the fire was going to reach the worm, the man reached in and he grabbed the worm out and cupped it to his breast. And he said, stranger, do you see this worm? I was this perishing creature. I was dying in my sins, hopeless and helpless and on the brink of eternal fire. And it was Jesus Christ who put forth his arm of power. It was Jesus Christ who delivered me with the hand of his grace and he plucked me from everlasting burnings. It was Jesus Christ who placed me, a poor, sinful worm, near the heart of his love. Stranger, that is the reason why I talk of Jesus Christ and make much of him. I'm not ashamed of it because I love him. To have a heart turned to the Father is to know the Father's heart is turned to us. To be healed by the Son of Righteousness is to fear his name, to be saved from your sin, from the very fires of hell, and to be swallowed up in the eternal love of God in Christ is to repent. Repent, and you will be saved forever. Do you want this? Are you ready for the end? Who will you trust today to guarantee your safety in the day of judgment? It could be coming for you today. On your way home from church, are you trusting in yourself? Or will you trust in Jesus Christ? To repent of your sin and embrace his gift of salvation purchased for you at the cross and his empty tomb is to enter into everlasting life. We all have to die the first death. We can't avoid that. But you don't have to die the second you can escape the judgment if you put your faith in Jesus. He is the only way. And no matter how your life has gone, no matter your sin, for you who fear his name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. Are you ready for the end? Let me pray for you. Father, we need your help to believe these things as we ought. May your Holy Spirit, with the chisel of the gospel, be chipping away at the hardness of our hearts. Father, there are some in this room 
who need to repent and put their faith in your son for the first time, they have not done that. And I don't know their reasons for coming, but I believe it is a divine appointment to put them in the crosshairs of the gospel. May your grace cover them and lift them and give them such joy in knowing that your son has died and risen for them. Father, for every precious saint in this room, we need the strength of your grace in our hearts. We need the strength of your grace to share the gospel with our lost friends and family members and and even strangers that we encounter who need to know about the good news. And we just need it in our our own hearts and minds, Lord, to get through another day in this broken world, to get through another day under the weight of our own sin. We need to know that the burden of your son is light and his yoke is easy. And if we will come to him, he will give us rest. We thank you for the healing of grace. May we all know it by the power of your spirit. And in the name of your son, Christ Jesus, amen.